Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Today's guest is Paula Davis, founder and CEO of the Stress and Resilience Institute, which helps legal professionals and teams manage stress and avoid burnout. Paula entered the legal profession as a real estate attorney, but facing burnout herself, ultimately left her practice to pursue a master's in applied positive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. As part of that program and continuing thereafter, she worked in a program for the U.S. Army to help teach staff sergeants techniques to build resiliency. She talks in a fascinating way about that. In 2013, she founded the Stress and Resilience Institute, where she has taught thousands of legal professionals resilience skills by drawing on scientific studies and data. Additionally, Paul is a writer on topics such as stress management, frequently appearing in publications around the globe. She has also authored and co-authored a number of books. In today's conversation, Paula tells us about being a self-described recovering perfectionist, how she defines resilience and burnout, and how legal organizations can maintain a sense of belonging in hybrid working environments. In light of the growing complexity of the legal industry and the stress associated with it, this was a timely and informative conversation. Thanks to Paula for making the time, and I hope you all get as much out of it as did I. Thanks for listening. Hi, Paula. Welcome to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Uh, Thank you for making the time to talk to us today. Hey, Steve. I'm still looking forward to our conversation. Thanks for having me. Well, as we said off air, you're an old pro at this, so I'm looking forward to it as well. You can teach me a few things. (laughs) I don't think so. We'll we'll have a good conversation, though. (laughs) There you go. Well, let's talk a little bit about you and your your professional journey, because it's not been linear by any stretch of the imagination. Let's go into the way back machine. What made you want to go to law school in the first place? Because you didn't go directly from undergrad to law school, I don't think. You you took some time out to, I assume, assess your options, and you chose to go to law school. Um, Kind of, kind of not. So I uh, am a psychology major in undergrad. I actually went to college thinking I was going to become a physical therapist. So I went to a school here in Wisconsin that was known for its physical therapy program and got into it and realized it's not what I wanted to do. And I had happened to take uh, quite a few psych courses as part of that program already. And here's me practically thinking I want to finish in four years still. So I'll major in psychology. And I actually really loved it. I loved um, everything about the science of psychology and when I graduated, I um, didn't want to go into the, you know, the mental illness side of psychology. And there wasn't much else that I could find that really resonated with me. And so I did take a little bit of time, but um, decided to go to law school in part because I had taken several constitutional law classes in college and absolutely loved them and loved a lot of the theory of law and what we were talking about with the Supreme Court and Supreme Court decisions and things of that nature. So that was that was really it. I wanted to continue my my graduate studies. And so I can't tell you that I had this, you know, burning passion since I was, you know, eight to go to law school. So there was a little bit of thought behind it, but I I don't know that it was probably as well thought out as it should have been. (laughs) I think a lot of us sort of went to law school that way as well. Well, this sounds like fun. Let's do this. Right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so you, you come out of law school and you take a job with a great uh, Milwaukee law firm mm-hmm. and then uh, and then go in-house uh, practicing real estate. What caused you to choose real estate as a practice area? 
See, this is another thing. I I feel like if there's one thing that I lacked in terms of thinking about going to law school and then my actual practice was a lot of intentionality. And so I um, started as I was going through law school thinking that I would go more so into business law. So my parents owned a business for 15 years. There's a lot of entrepreneurship in my family. I've always had a very entrepreneurial kind of mindset and way of thinking and wanted to help other folks essentially like my parents with their businesses. And it just happened to be that when I, when I started my practice, there was just more of a need for on the commercial real estate side of things. And so I just did that. And I feel like, um, I think that's a big miss about law school generally. And I feel like it's an area that's probably gotten better, but I think we could up our game in the legal profession, you know, similar to medical school where, where students get to try, you know, lots of different practice areas and specialties before they really commit and choose that would have helped me tremendously. So it's not like I didn't like practicing commercial real estate law. There were some really interesting aspects of it and about it that I liked, but it probably at the end of the day wasn't the area that really like lit me up and it felt like, wow, like this is really where I could spend, you know, the next 30 years of my life, like really, really practicing. So it just happened to be though that I was practicing in the in the 2000s where, uh, you know, before the, the financial crisis hit, uh, you know, everyone was building whatever they wanted to build and, and you know, developments and, and in the real estate practice was hot. I don't think I was ever slow the entire seven years that I practiced. So I recall those years. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You, you talk about burning out and then choosing to go get your master's. And I I'm curious, as you look back on it now with the virtue of, of hindsight of a, of a number of years, what were those variables that sort of led you to burnout and, and how has that experience had an impact on your current practice? That's such a great question because I could even see sort of how I got my thinking wrong about burnout and it's what I really seek to do now when I talk to folks in the legal profession and across industry. So I am very much on the individual side. So we oftentimes think about burnout as solely an individual driven thing. It is a failure of individual stress management, and we have to figure out how to help individuals get better on the individual side of dealing with that. And that's part of the equation, but it's actually a very small piece of the puzzle. And so, but for me, from, from my own sort of, I call it your wiring standpoint on the individual side, I'm very much a people pleaser. I'm very much what I call an achievaholic. Um, having lofty goals and being very achievement oriented is very important to me. And I'm a recovering perfectionist. And so that combination of traits sets me up for a lot of really good things, but also sets me up for a lot of not so great things in terms of stress. And I can really, you know, put my head down and focus and find myself not popping up in the way that I should and prioritizing self-care and pauses and breaks and coping strategies and things like that. So having been so busy for those seven years, I think a lot of that piece of it really caught up with me. The piece, though, that is oftentimes missed is the systemic or institutional influence of burnout on people. And so I now think of burnout very much as the individual manifestation of a workplace system or culture issue. And so what I wholly missed and definitely didn't think about because it was very hard on myself coming out of my law practice and going into my master's studies, thinking, you know, how did you engineer yourself into this mess? You know, what stress management memo did you miss? Like, what, what, did, what did you do or not do that got you to this place? And so 
as I just mentioned, I had to have a really hard talk with myself and, you know, it involved and still involves today therapy and being very conscientious about, um, you know, my self-care practices and things like that. I really have to watch that. Never gave a thought, though, to the different types of teaming and organizational drivers that I now look back on and realize were absolutely present and very much part of the conversation and the events that, you know, caused and led me to burnout. So I think looking back and reflecting on and being a little softer with myself around, you know, some of it was stuff that I, you know, had some influence over. Other pieces of the puzzle were things that I definitely did not or at least just didn't see as being factors until actually quite a number of years after I finished my master's work and really started to dig into a lot of this research and talk to other people and interview other people um, about their own burnout experiences that I started to see like, wow, there's a big piece of the puzzle here that we're missing in our conversations. And so that's really influenced a lot of my work and how I wrote about burnout in my book and how I talk about burnout and how I seek to educate the legal profession about it as we go forward. Yeah, and I want to come back to this. I'll, I'll make a note uh, for our listeners. You wrote a, a great article that's pretty new. I think January this month, January of 2023, in an outbolt and called "How Teams Can Help Address Burnout in the Legal Profession." And I want to come back to that here in a minute because you've touched on a number of themes. But it, it's a great read for anybody who is wants to follow up on this. So you chose to go back and get a master's. I assume this is from your prior experience with psychology in undergrad. Did you go thinking you were going to focus on resilience and burnout and stress? What what was the initial goal going into the program? So I love this question. I would say one of the themes of my career, as you've kind of heard a little bit already, is I sort of just try things out and go, okay. We'll see. You know, I, I keep kind of kind of an open mind and saying yes to things and putting one foot in front of the other to see what works and what doesn't work. And then I adjust. But it was very similar, very similar to my experience now with my master's program is I didn't know what I was going to find. I was only the fifth class to go through this master's in applied positive psychology program at the University of Pennsylvania. So the program itself was quite new. And absolutely, I mean, there wasn't a named sort of area of psychological study called positive psychology back when I graduated from from college. And so to have learned that that existed right away was a huge spark for me. I thought, oh, I get to go back into this, this area of science that I absolutely love, um, but I get to do it in a really interesting and different way. I get to look at it through the lens of workplace well-being and human flourishing and thriving. And that just held so much appeal for me. But I have to tell you, I mean, I stopped my law practice in July of 2009 and started my master's program in September of 2009. I was still recovering from burnout. I mean, I ended up, I was in a very serious place when I stopped my law practice. I was at the point where I was getting panic attacks almost every day. I had been in the emergency room twice because I had really bad stomach aches from the stress that I was experiencing. And so I was still in recovery mode and I didn't realize it even as I was going through it. And I was, you know, still pretty exhausted and really just got myself to the program thinking, I don't know what it is going to offer me, but there's something here. I know that there's got to be something here within the science and the research that will resonate with me that I feel like I could teach, that I could sell, that I could take back into the legal profession and help people with, because I just don't want people to end up like I ended up. I mean, that was really my big overarching theme really going into the program. 
And we didn't really get into a lot of the resilience science even until the second semester. So some of it was teed up early on because UPenn had just started working with the United States military, specifically with the U.S. Army, working with and teaching drill sergeants and soldiers and senior level non-commissioned officers and officers the skills associated with with really PEN's format and PEN's version of how resilience should be taught and what resilience looks like. And so that little inkling right away got my attention, but it wasn't until we really dug into the science of it in, in that second semester where I thought like, wow, like I could immediately see how some of the thinking and the processes could have helped me out. Would it have stopped my burnout? I don't know, but I could have at least helped myself and figured out or engineered a path that I think would have made more sense for myself. But I could also see myself teaching this. Like I could feel like this would be something other lawyers might resonate with or grasp or or seek to understand more about. And so that was all very appealing. And so as soon as we kind of got into that resilience piece, I really honestly never looked back uh, and then had the opportunity coming out of the program to apply to be part of the training team to work in in the Army Penn program. And so was able to be just very fortunate enough to be accepted into that program. That was really the second part of my education. Um, and I think back on it now about how instrumental it was that I had the opportunity to have that second piece because, you know, reading a bunch of studies and, and getting the theory and the knowledge behind a concept like resilience is great, but I was still a lawyer. I mean, I didn't know how to teach any of this stuff to people. <laughs> so having that second piece was so critical where I got to see like, here's how you break down concepts and here's how you teach adults about scientific stuff. And, um, you know, it was really, and just on a personal side, just changed my life completely being part of that program. And so if, if everything had stopped at that moment and I had just had that experience, I would have said, okay, cool. This was, this was pretty fantastic. But luckily, luckily we've kept going. But no, it was such a, such an instrumental kind of convergence of things right there that really solidified my interest in, in wanting to pursue that area of science. I want to talk a little bit about how you teach resilience, particularly to drill sergeants. I, I just find that experience fascinating. But let's start with a little um, definition work, because we're talking about resilience. We talk about stress management. We talk about burnout. Are we using the same term to describe the same thing, or are we talking related concepts? Talk us through a little bit what you mean by each of those terms. Sure. No, I love this. And thank you so much for grounding us in the definitions, because that's always where I like to start when I talk about this, because I think this is where we get off base with, I think, our conversation with all of this, all of these pieces. Um, so resilience is really about two parts. So there's lots of different definitions of resilience, in part because there's just lots of different pathways to develop it and build it. So it's hard to get one really solid core universally accepted definition of resilience because the researchers are going to disagree in terms of all of the general pathways that build it. But the two things that are really consistent are, first of all, it's a, it's a capacity. It's your ability. It's a capacity that can be developed to deal with, manage, overcome, obstacle, setback, failure, challenge, problems, hurdles, whatever word you want to put in there. So if we're talking about resilience, we're also talking about those things. We're talking about challenges and obstacles and problems because you need to have those in order to display some type of resilience. And so understanding that it's a capacity that we can grow and develop is really important. And second of all, what's also really important is that resilience is also about growth. So oftentimes we think about bouncing back associated with resilience. And in fact, it's bouncing forward. 
So learning what were the lessons I was supposed to learn from the obstacle, failure, setback, problem, challenge for myself, for my team, for my organization. And then how can I apply those lessons going forward? So the next time I encounter an obstacle or challenge, even if it's something different, I can take a pause and I can take a step back and think, I just went through something over here and through that accumulation, the collective like obstacles I've gone through in my, you know, work as a lawyer or um, in my life, I've accumulated some knowledge about how to deal with future ones. And so what can I take from those past challenges to apply going forward? So one, it's your capacity to develop that ability. And two, then it's your ability to also bounce forward from those challenges. Uh, And then when we, quite honestly, I've given this a lot of thought, and I don't know that there's really a word that captures the opposite of burnout. But I think that resilience is part of the solution to the team and the way that we have to think about the opposite of burnout. So I think it's a piece of the puzzle. I think it's a very important piece of the puzzle. So I think about resilience as kind of part of that solution piece. Um, When we talk about burnout, though, what we're really talking about is chronic workplace stress that has gone unchecked. And so a couple of really important words to think about there. One is chronic. So this is what I think one of the big things that differentiates burnout from stress is that it just doesn't go away. It sort of is there. And no matter what I try to do, no matter how I try to you know, alleviate it or tackle it or my self-care strategies aren't working like they used to, there's that more often than not, I'm feeling this way. I can't shake it and I can't let it go. The World Health Organization was also very keen when it updated its definition of burnout a handful of years ago to say, if we're talking about burnout, we're talking about something that has a workplace association, a workplace cause, a workplace root of some sort. And that's hard because we use the term burnout quite loosely. We use the term resilience quite loosely. You know, we're just it's like, I had a bad day and I'm so burned out. Then we use it in place of just general stress or in place of feeling tired or exhausted. And in reality, It's that specific definition, but it's also three big dimensions. So if we are using the word burnout, it is first feeling a sense of chronic exhaustion. So more often than not, I'm that tired, overwhelmed kind of state. It's also feeling a sense of chronic cynicism. So more often than not, people annoy me. People bother me. I'm I'm irritated by people more easily than I usually am. For me, it was very much also expressed toward my clients. So outwardly very professional, but inwardly a lot of eye rolling and a lot of thinking like, oh, you're not going to listen to my advice anyway. Why are we having this conversation? Like, can you not figure this out on your own? Sort of almost that desperate mindset because I was so exhausted and so tired that it was hard for me to dig in and really think through some of the sophisticated challenges that I was supposed to be dealing with. And then it's, it's also a sense of what the research calls inefficacy. So I'm unplugging, I'm disengaging from work that has previously felt meaningful to me. And I just sort of have that why bother, who cares mentality. So burnout is all three of those pieces, the chronic exhaustion, the chronic cynicism, and that sense of why bother, who cares. So that's what differentiates it to from stress. So stress, you know, exists on a spectrum. Also, we can get stressed because we're sitting in traffic, because we just got promoted, because we had a bad conversation with our teenager. It comes from all different areas and all different flavors. And then true burnout is really something that's focused or associated with work. So you had a lot in there to unpack. Let's start with the resilience piece. There's studies I've read, and you're probably familiar with the work of Dr. Larry Richard, talking about how lawyers tend to test low on, in resilience. Is that your experience? And if so, why do you think that is? 
So I have a question mark around this and Larry is a dear friend of mine. And so we've had some conversations around this and there's still some thinking that I need to do. And I think some conversations that he and I need to have. And I think that so a lot of his work is focused specifically with big law partners. And so I think it's a very heavily male constituency. And yeah, I mean, he thinks of it and sort of talks about resilience in terms of being very thin skinned and defensive when you are given feedback or when something challenging happens or what have you. And I do see those traits and tendencies for sure across different populations of lawyers. I guess I just tend to focus a little bit more on teaching the skills associated with building resilience such that for me, it doesn't matter if you come to me thin skinned, feeling fully resilient or however you are, because resilient ebbs and, resilience ebbs and flows. So we may have points in time where we do feel thin-skinned and we feel defensive and we feel challenged and leave me alone. I'm busy and you know other things are going on in our lives and we just have a lot of challenges that we're facing. Or we might feel also too that we're in a point in life and a point in our career where we got it figured out and I'm like kicking butt every day. And you know I feel more resilient and stronger than I typically do. And so For me, it's more about focusing on the different skills and capacities, regardless of where you are, kind of on that resilience spectrum to help you in case you get to that moment or when you get to those moments where you feel particularly challenged, you have a tool or something that you can pull on or or work through or will help you kind of manage those those challenges in a better way. How do you teach those skills to enhance resilience? Give us a sense without going into all the detail around your own curriculum. As a general proposition, how do you how do you teach someone to be more resilient? Sure. And this, this is a great question. And I think that we lose sight of this oftentimes in our conversation with resilience because it's it's such a commonly known word, but I think quite misunderstood, particularly in its application to the workplace. Because I think we think we get our hackles up and we're like, who's this woman coming in here and telling me that I need to be more resilient? And oh man, this is just the firm like trying to tell me I need to be more resilient so I can stick around and bill 500 more hours this year or what have you. And so I think we sometimes get it a little bit wrong, but it's really just, um, it's a capacity. And so I guess I teach my flavor or version of resilience through the way that I learned it and was trained at Penn. Um, but having them really, really talk about the different pathways associated with building it. And so one very big one is developing our mental strength, developing that mental toughness. And it's especially important for lawyers because we're professional thinkers and our think like a lawyer style of training helps us very much with legal issues, but oftentimes can really get in our way outside of when we need it to noodle through legal challenges. And so that who's at fault, who's to blame, what problem is lurking around the corner, deficit, pessimistic sort of lens. Again, very good for our legal stuff. Not so great, though, when we're having conversations with our significant other or with our kids or, you know, developing business even and, and things of that nature. And so so focusing on we're thinking differently about how you deliver legal services. I mean, there's that, that fear of failure that always looking for the thing that's going to go wrong is has to be a real hurdle for you in dealing with the profession. Yes. And so. um so thinking, knowing that lawyers, and this is also back to, to Dr. Richard's research, um, lawyers are very skeptical and lawyers are very urgent. And so it's important to really get in quickly with science and data and evidence. And like, you know, I think that's part of the reason why some of my version of this training has resonated 
with lawyers is that it's that way. And it's, it's some of it, especially this mental toughness piece can lend itself very well to a step one, step two, step three type process that also really resonates with the way lawyers tend to think. And so I'll give you an example. I mean, one of the skills that I teach a lot to lawyers is how to lessen catastrophizing or worst case scenario thinking. Not in the way that lawyers tend to think of worst case scenario thinking, but that sense of when you encounter a stressor and in five minutes you got yourself living in a van down by the river where it's all going wrong and it's going there very quickly. I I can't empathize with that at all, really. <laughs> it's so common. I mean, and it's especially common in the legal profession. And I mean, it's any number of things across the entire spectrum of one's career and one's practice. And so when we're a more junior a lawyer, we might get a document back and see all sorts of red in it and think, yeah, I'm never going to get any work. And the partner's going to tell other partners that I don't know what I'm doing and I'm not going to make my hours and I'm going to get fired and I'm going to have to go back and live with my parents and I can't pay my bills. And like that whole sort of mentality really starts to take hold. And there's actually a very, very simple process to help us start to rein that in. And my message is never you're going to eradicate this thinking style because I don't think that that's possible. But it's like we want to get our arms around it quicker and in a better way so that it doesn't impact my performance as much. And so I can focus quicker. I can have a conversation that I need to have. I can finish a document that I'm working on instead of being in my head completely. And so the process I can walk you through very quickly is just to think about and to capture what is your, I call it your horror movie. That worst case scenario needs to be dealt with and come out of your head somehow. And usually most effectively by writing it down, just stream of conscious writing. You need to give yourself, your brain, sort of the opposite side of the equation. So that's your Disney movie. So that's the next step. And it's not about logic. And this step is very hard for lawyers because we want to make this very logical. What's the best case scenario? But our our horror movie is not very logical oftentimes either. And so it's, it's just about getting a jolt of positive emotion so that you can then think through what is your documentary? What are just the facts, right? Stay in the now and stick to the facts. What's truly going on? And what's my course of action going to be? What's my plan? What am I going to do about this so that you can get back into taking purposeful action and the steps that you need to take to deal with the issues? So those are the types of pieces that I like to, to talk about under that that mental strength component. But resilience is also very much about building high quality, strong relationships. It's very much about unpacking that belonging conversation that is so critical right now, given our hybrid world of work. It's also about understanding how we stress. And so stress, that stress piece is a very important component of resilience, because if you're constantly depleted, if you're burned out, you're not going to be able to deal with and tackle the obstacles and challenges and setbacks as effectively. So lots of different pathways to pick to develop resilience. But that mental strength piece is one, again, that I really like for lawyers. You must find it incredibly gratifying to be able to help people work through what's a, what's a really critical challenge in the profession. It's immensely satisfying. And it, I know it's, it's so funny because you didn't ask me this directly, but one of the questions that people ask me a lot is, who's been your toughest audience? Who is the hardest group for you to speak to? And I think they ask me that once they know the work that I've done with the military and they assume it's going to be drill sergeants, right? Because we have this. No, I assume it's going to be lawyers. It is. It's 110%. It's always by far <laughs> lawyers. Of course. <laughs> 
And it's so it's so funny. Um, I get such a chuckle out of that whenever I have that conversation. But here's to your question back to back to that point when I know when a lawyer pulls me aside and says something like, did you think of this? Like, or, or did you create this program? Like, did you think of this? Like, how did you how did you put these pieces together? Or this particular skill I had someone tell me um, helped to save my marriage. It was in the relationship bucket that we talked about. Or even when I have, like, I haven't seen a lawyer for several years and I'll go back to the firm and they'll, they'll be there for some other capacity and they'll pull me aside and they'll, they'll, almost always it's that catastrophizing exercise really helped me, you know, rethink how I think about getting stuck in like a deal when I'm in it or what have you. Whenever a lawyer shares like a personal story or an anecdote or praise of some sort, I know I've done something pretty powerful because uh, to, to have lawyers, you know, sort of speak in, in that way, um, I think is, is really a cool thing. So let me segue just a little bit here in the time we've got left, pick up on your belonging point, because you talk about it, you talked about it in the sense of helping deal with resilience. You also talk about it in terms of how teams address burnout in the article I referred to earlier. We now live in by and large a hybrid working world. I mean, we've, we're no longer completely virtual, but we're also not everybody huddled around the break room either. I understand the importance of a sense of belonging and the role teams can play in dealing with burnout and, and resilience. But how do you deal with that in a, in a hybrid world where people are connecting sometimes in person, sometimes virtually? They're not always on the same work schedule. What impact does that have on this this very important component of the solution? This is a really tough challenge. We we are in the middle of trying to figure out a really tough challenge in a whole host of ways right now. And I think belonging is really at the center of what we're trying to figure out in our world of hybrid work. I think one of the pieces that we're missing when it comes to the belonging piece is a sense of intentionality. I think that we sort of are thinking like, well, we got to do this hybrid thing uh, or else we're going to lose talented people. And so we've got to we've got to do this. It just seems to be what people want. And that's important. But we're just going to kind of leave it up to like each practice group or each team to kind of figure out like what that looks like instead of being more intentional and thoughtful and thinking about what is connection and belonging look like right now? How is it evolving? Because we had an idea of what it looked like before the pandemic. It's reshaping itself right now. And what does that mean? What's the value proposition for maybe newer lawyers who are like, I'm all about the autonomy piece of the equation. I want to stay home. Give me that flexibility piece. It can be lawyers of really any practice age. But, you know, we tend to think about some of the younger generations as really craving that piece. And I think it's a little bit more broad than that. But what's the value proposition? What, what's in it for me? What are How are we going to educate now other groups of lawyers about what does belonging mean and why is it important for our profession? And why do you need it to develop into the type of lawyer that you want to develop into? I don't think we're doing that a whole lot either. And we've got this tension that's been created now. So one of the frameworks that I tend to work from in terms of you know, optimizing well-being within organizations and on teams is what I call your ABCs. So there's just tons of research talking about how we need to have a sense of autonomy, belonging, and competence. So think of mastery also in terms of that competence piece in order for us to feel a sense of motivation and well-being in our world of work. And there's a great study specific to the legal profession also showing the importance of those ABCs. 
They're not nice to haves. They're critical pieces for us to really be thinking about in our world of work. And right now, we're at, at, at odds with the A and the B, with the autonomy and the belonging. And we're trying to figure out how do we how do we give both of these to people? Because we can't not have any either of these things, but belonging just looks so different now. And so I think we need to really have those conversations and think about when should we meet? How do we meet? When people are in the office, what specifically are we going to be doing together? Because it's also frustrating for me to deal with my commute and come into the office and no one else is here, but I'm here. Um, and so again, back to that intentionality aspect as well. So I think being more clear at defining what does this mean and how is this going to reshape itself going forward? We all need to be on the same page about it instead of kind of throwing something against the wall and hoping, hoping or seeing what sticks. So. You know, it's it's such an interesting point you make because when I listen to these debates about the hybrid nature or the in-person, or, people tend to think of it as sort of an A-B test. Everybody's got to come into the office and that'll solve all our belonging problems or everybody can be virtual and that'll solve all our autonomy problems. And they aren't taking that next level that you're describing and saying, okay, we need to have both. How do we manage this problem in a way that creates a creative solution that's unique. I presume the solution is going to be relatively unique for each organization based on their culture and their dynamics and their, their workforce population. Yes. And this is, this is actually, um, I'm thinking about what I want my next book to be about. And this is, this is essentially what I'm, what I'm hoping to tee up is, is a book about this exactly what we're talking about. Kind of the central need, you know, focusing on belonging, but also how do we capture the interplay between the flexibility and the belonging and some of these other needs that we really need to have met in our world of work. And so you're right. I think it's going to be much more nuanced. It's not going to be a one size fits all answer. And I think back to this word intentionality, I think it's going to have to be very consciously created. And that's not necessarily how we usually think in the legal profession when it comes to this particular topic. We kind of just want it to go back to the way it was because we know what that looks like and we know that that feels familiar. That's just not the way that we're marching going forward in the future of work. And so we've got to really take that pause and and it's obviously not going to be just one conversation. I mean, this is going to be a series of conversations across, you know, generations and constituencies in our world of work to, I think, really unpack what makes sense, you know, and probably trying some things out and seeing what works and maybe revising a little bit. But again, we'll see, but certainly a challenge. Yeah, I, I know we've we've gone over our time a little bit, but if you'll bear with me, just one last question I'm curious about. So you you started... Well-being in the legal profession is now uh, a trending topic. There's a lot of conversations about it. I, I don't know anybody that's doing it quite the way you do it, but it's but it is a hot topic. But that's not when you started this practice. I don't think. I suspect that when you started, you may not have been the lone voice in the wilderness, but there, <laughs> but there, but there certainly wasn't a big uh, choir singing at the time. <laughs> How did you persevere? What was a tipping point where it became something that the managements of law firms and legal departments actually began to focus on? I love this question. And I'm so glad we're, we're digging into this and, and that we, um, we have a chance to unpack this a little bit. Because, no, I stand on the shoulders of folks who came before me, um, people like Dan Bowling, who started one of the very first well-being courses at a law firm. He's at Duke. 
um, and started teaching it um, several years even before I went through the positive psychology program. You know, people like Dave Sheeran, who worked at, um, you know, the Tennessee Continuing Legal Education folks and, you know, was getting programs and some data going back in 2004, 2005, 2006. And so I, I stand on on their shoulders, first of all. But yeah, I mean, I was, it was still in my program in 2009 and wanted to write an article about all this fabulous research that I was learning and reached out to some editors locally here at Wisconsin Lawyer Magazine. And I think I had to write three pitch articles and potentially, I think, have one conversation just to even convince them that this was a topic worth publishing. So we finally got that article published and then me and my entrepreneurial spirit coming out of, you know, Penn in 2010, thinking I'm going to take the legal profession by storm or I'm going to change it. And I mean, I was so naive and but really just so hopeful. And um, there were some very early, very, very early adopters, several professional development folks in larger firms who were familiar with what positive psychology was and knew of Marty Seligman and his research and other things who took a chance and just, you know, we did a, a couple of short programs and they introduced me and gave me connections to places like the Professional Development Consortium and NALP and other places where, you know, I started to just have conversations. But I, I call it the calm before the calm, because here I am thinking like, I'm going to rush through and, you know, do all of this. And it was it was just, you know, really kind of like, oh, this is nice. You know, this is this is lovely, but we're just going to kind of go on about how we've always done this. And so for me, in order to at a couple of issues, one, how do I maintain a business, right? Because I need to grow and develop something. And if what I'm selling, people aren't buying, that's a that's a problem from a business (laughs) standpoint. And so the Army training program was also very fundamental in allowing me to continue with my business and have it grow at a slower than I expected pace while still have some income coming in. And, you know, obviously learning the ropes of how to teach all of this as we talked about. So that was that was just, you know, super lucky that I had that to fall back on. But then I also started to do work in healthcare. I started to do, you know, work at the Medical College of Wisconsin here with some physicians who were thinking along these lines already and in other industries where they were already a little bit further down the path. And so that also ignited in why I never just solely focused in the legal profession, in part because I was forced to go into other professions to seek out you know, this work and to help with where the need was at the time. So then you fast forward to, uh, you know, Patrick Krill and his colleagues published a study, I believe it was in 2016, showing the, again, elevated and very high rates of depression and anxiety and substance use in our profession. And it just seemed right place, right time, really galvanized a lot of the conversation. And then you saw the ABA and other entities with their task force, and they issued that phenomenal report. People started to grab onto that. And then we had the well-being pledge. And then it just kind of snowballed such that firms realized, like, we really have to start paying attention to this. And then some firms do it. And then other firms say, we got to do it because these firms are doing it. And then it, you know, just continues to expand. There is that tendency in law firms. Very much so. And and the resilience piece really gravitated, um, really resonated early on with a lot of the legal organizations that I was talking to with a lot of the lawyers that I was teaching. And so that was, I just happened to be, you know, kind of right place, right time with a really great skill set to teach folks in the midst of this growing environment. And now, I mean, just to see, I mean, I reflect on 2010 coming out of my master's program to 20, the beginning of 2023, and how we have seen just so many other professionals in this space just continue to 
amplify and build and do new research and really, really expand the reach of what all of this is and what we can do and all the different pathways and avenues that shape what lawyer well-being and the legal profession well-being really is has just been so phenomenal to see. And so I know that oftentimes the legal profession gets a bit of a bad rap as being kind of slow to, (laughs) we're kind of the last ones along with some of these conversations and slow to adopt things. But I can really see a progression and a change in that period of time that I've, I've had my involvement with it. So it's been really cool to see. Yeah, it has been. And I know we're out of time. I want to thank you again for spending it. You're doing some great work and uh, it's making a big difference in the profession. Thank you for that and uh, congratulations on it. Thank you so much. I'm just I'm just so humbled and honored to be able to to do the work and um you know work work with lawyers and legal professionals to in some way um positively shape their practice or whatever it is that they want to do in their careers. So hopefully I'll get to keep doing it for a little while longer, but um I really um thank you so much for our conversation. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.